0: welcome back to athens favorite history podcast is this too niche we are over the moon to be back we hope you enjoyed our last season (laughs) but we are back for season two and we are better than ever and we have so many new ideas that you are not even ready as usual we're your hosts i'm jada and i'm zoe And this is season two of Is This Too Neat? For the start of this season, we wanted to do a special episode where we could both share a bit of the hosting duties and discuss a topic that we're both super into. So we thought that we would do a fun little art history 101 for the people. We're going to give you a rundown of the majority of the art history periods that most people recognize and fill you in on some specific artists from each period that you might not have heard of or aren't very familiar with. Yes i do have i i always i always have some kind of thing to say i do have a disclaimer that we are going to be focusing on western art history for this episode but perhaps i know (laughs) (laughs) but perhaps if you guys like this episode we'll come back with a part two and we'll do like around the world i don't yeah
1: i don't think perhaps i think definitely yeah
0: okay yeah because i have a lot of
1: artists no i know i was thinking that i was like i do
0: really want to incorporate other ones yeah i think that would just have to be its own episode so jada's gonna go first because i didn't do one from this section but the first little period that we're going to talk about is like prehistoric slash the ancient world
1: yes so to start off i'm I'm going to be real. I'm not a big fan of ancient art. I I think it's cool. And I think it's very interesting to look at because it's like the foundation to all art. Mm-hmm. But I also don't really care. <laughs> it, it does not make my top 10 art periods. Okay. Whatever. I did find one that I found very interesting. So mark my words. Maybe I, I kinda will I kind of get like that. I mean, I am into it, but it
0: is kind of boring at the same time yeah
1: yeah I I just like I like to learn about the artist's past and stuff yeah there's just like that doesn't happen it's just not there but whatever today I am going to be talking about the Nazca geoglyphs located in Peru I picked these because I'm such a big fan of Zelda tears of the kingdom right now and if you know you know because these are so Zelda core literally I'm obsessed so let's get into it Again, the Nazca geoglyphs are located in Peru and date back from 200 BC to 500 AD. During that time, there was a civilization called the Nazca. In regards to art in the ancient world, the Nazca civilization had a very distinct and contemporary art style, especially in their pottery, which is super interesting. And I implore you to go check it out because I was stunned to say the least. But they also created these massive geoglyphs that are genuinely unbelievable to look at and incredibly impressive for the time they were made. The actual meaning or function behind these giant geoglyphs are still a mystery today. There are a few theories like the possible astronomical alignment of the lines, the connection to the ancient water systems, and even the artwork found surrounding the lines, but none have led to any clearer answers. The lines were made by simply removing rocks and dirt from the surface, revealing a lighter sand color below, and because of the specific weather conditions in Peru, they still can be seen today. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. They span over 170 square miles. So you just have to think how crazy it was to make these Mm -hmm. massive geoglyphs without a high viewpoint. Like, it couldn't have been easy. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, looping back to my Zelda Tears of the Kingdom obsession, I did some research and found that they were indeed inspired by the Nazca lines. So you should go to the lines, find a teardrop, and have a crazy vision about your best friend.
0: I thought it was interesting that for, like, the ancient world, you chose something in Peru because in, like... I know I just said we were doing, like, Western art history, yeah. but, like, this is still fine. I just, in, like... Yeah. I think it's interesting because, like... At least I know for the AP art history curriculum, they do, like, a Native America's, like, section, but it spans from, like, prehistory to, like, current day, which is kind of BS. Yeah. I know, obviously, they're not going to be able to include, like, every thing, but it's super, like, homogenizing to Mm -hmm. be like, okay, here's Native American art. Also, it is from the entire human history of... I'm not very eloquent today. Also... (laughs) It's okay. It's just kind of, you know... Um, no, yeah. Rude. So, yeah, I thought this was interesting. I didn't I didn't know about these. I think that's yeah,
1: cool.
0: Yeah. That's what I, had to, that's I, what I was I thinking about. I didn't know about
1: them either, so... Yeah. It that's, was very enlightening. Yeah. And I thought they needed to be included. So, next up, I
0: just went straight to antiquity because even though I am kind of a classics minor, I just did not feel like talking about the ancient art (laughs) and it's not like is i'm not like jada (laughs) i'm not like jada she's not like other girls i just like i do enjoy ancient art but i just like didn't have anything to say that hasn't already been said you know yeah so So there's a woman i was just like i'm just gonna jump right into like the more interesting stuff so like i said i'm gonna jump into antiquity but i am also going to say something blasphemous and it's that i like did not have fun with antiquity well i it's kind of the same as the ancient world where it's like i do enjoy learning about it but i'm like okay
1: antiquity is literally my least favorite okay work like it's below like the ancient world okay i wouldn't say it's
0: my least favorite but it definitely is a bit boring
1: i hate (laughs) it like genuinely okay i cannot stand it my studies will not be surrounding that that's fine that's fine I
0: did include a piece from the ancient world, though, and it is pretty interesting, but it's not as interesting as the later Yeah, piece, I do like this piece. Though. I'm, like, so enthusiastic about this right now. I <laughs> can just hear it in my voice. We're going to get so enthusiastic later. Okay. I'm just wait. Yeah. So, I'm also cheating because I've been saying antiquity over and over again, but this piece kind of qualifies as medieval. Yeah. Which are two different things. You've got, like, the ancient world, antiquity, and then medieval. Mm-hmm. But this is my podcast. I make the rules, so we're mushing them all together because we didn't feel like doing research this week.
1: We had a a big week, We did, we did.
0: So, some background. Antiquity comprises the period surrounding the fall of the Roman Empire, which coincides with the establishment of the Byzantine Empire, and Western Europe fell into a medieval period where nomadic cultures like the Vikings and the Merovingians did their thing, you know... (laughs) whatever they did, and um, small duchies or fiefdoms was, like, kind of just... So we're springing up around Europe. Like, that was kind of it. So during this time, most of the works were, like... Most of the art from this time that survives were, like, small portable objects, like jewelry, weapons, manuscripts, sometimes architecture, but I have medieval architecture trauma, and I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, so now we come to the medieval period like i said i'm mushing them all together but that can be split into different periods based on the architecture style again not going into it Mm -hmm. i just don't feel like it so the piece that i'm going to be talking about today is from the year 1066 common era and it's a very famous work called the the bayou tapestry and the name is misleading because it's actually embroidery yeah which is really impressive because it is A whopping 70 meters long. And for some reason on one of the websites, when I was researching, it said that's the length of two blue whales. I don't know why they chose that to, like, put it into perspective, but if you want to, like, picture that. Why did I not think this was that big? I mean, everyone tells me it's big, but, like, I can't visualize things. So that actually did kind of help. I was like, okay.
1: And that's genuinely insane to embroider all that.
0: Especially because the people embroidering it were, like, women, probably, like, nuns. Yeah, yeah and, and
1: like. embroidery takes forever mm-hmm. yeah
0: no wonder it looks like shit i'm <laughs> sorry Real. i'm kidding, no, I'm you're kidding. Not. Mm-hmm. um anyway so the tapestry <laughs> depicts a historic event it is the conquest of england by william the conqueror who's also the duke of normandy and it does so in 58 scenes the actual subject of the piece is kind of boring I don't really care. It's just that, you know, William was like, I have the right to the throne of England. But King Harold was like, girl, no. And then they fought and William won. The cool thing about this tapestry and the reason I'm talking about it is because it actually depicts a lot of information that historians use to reference, like, and to figure out things about what everyday life would have looked like Mm -hmm. at that time, which I think is more interesting than just, like, war. Yeah. So, like, they show depictions of preparing food, travel, architecture... Um, they show the ships that the Normans would have come across the ocean on. Not across the ocean, but we know. they would have arrived by ship, and they would have resembled Viking ships because they have—they had Viking descendants. And there's also some, like, really cool historical things that were accidentally captured on the piece. Like, there's one part where you can see King Harold observing the passing of Halley's Comet, which is a comet that passes the earth once every 75 years. So I just thought that was kind of cool because it like kind of in a weird way like unites humanity through the ages mm-hmm. because most people whether they know it or not have probably once in their life at least seen Haley's comet, you know. It is cool. I think that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, another unique fact about the tapestry is that do you wanna guess how many penises are present on the tapestry? Penises there is a number. I'll guess.
1: Okay. It's it's two whales long. I don't know, twenty six. Way, way higher than that. Really? Mm-hmm. There's I didn't even realize. Maybe I haven't looked at this thing in long. So like well, I would hope that when you do look at it, you're not like skimming yeah. through
0: looking for penises. Well, maybe
1: I will after this. Okay. Just for funsies. How many are there? 93. Holy crap! 88
0: of them belong to horses. <laughs> and the largest of which belongs to William the Conqueror's horse.
1: Someone sat there and embroidered.
0: <laughs> yeah. Those poor nuns, oh they were my not God. getting paid.
1: That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Laugh <laughs> it up. <laughs> Sorry. It's ridiculous.
0: Yeah. Okay. Here's where we start to get into the interesting stuff. We had to get that. <laughs> we had to get that out of the way. We are all probably familiar with the Renaissance. I'll give a, a little tiny bit of background, but it started in Italy because of their location in the Mediterranean. They had access to trade unlike the rest of Europe. And... It was known as a period of creative and scientific development, and Europe became began to somewhat resemble, like politically at least, the way that it looks today. We like to divide the Renaissance between the North and the South, the South being Italy, and the North being literally everything else. And there is a pretty big difference. I'm gonna be talking about an Italian Renaissance artist, so, you know. But most Renaissance subjects were usually like classical scenes or religious scenes. Aren't we all familiar with the Annunciation? All the ugly baby Jesuses. Yes. Lots of ugly baby Jesuses. I have to say I do think that um the Italian Renaissance is a little bit more interesting than the Northern Renaissance because the Northern Renaissance is literally just
1: the Virgin Mary,
0: like over and over again yeah girl there is a lot of the same picture yeah and it's very repetitive like over and over and over yeah um but even so in italy there was still like a formula oh well yeah and um a set of standards it was just a bit different down there so which is why this artist is so interesting to me we're talking about i don't know how to pronounce his name we're talking about giuseppe arcimboldo arcimboldo is that how i'm gonna say it Mm mm-hmm as like I said, he is was an Italian artist, and during his time, painters were usually either employed in aristocratic courts or commissioned by religious figures like the Pope. Giuseppe himself was employed by Rudolf II of the Habsburg family, but he did not produce boring court portraits like most court artists would have. Interesting. He was very lucky because Rudolf was a G, and mm-hmm. he actually really liked Giuseppe's creativity, and you will see that that's cool yeah so though he was trained as a court painter like i said he did something very unique instead of creating realistic slash flattering portraits of his patrons he explored his art as a more creative outlet which was kind of unique for the time that's very unique yeah um he did a lot of like experimenting that i think was ahead of his time he dove into the world of the grotesque and he used inanimate objects to construct his portraits meaning that he would often paint fruits or animals into the shape of faces. From a distance, his, pr- his works would look like normal portraits, but up close you would see that his subjects are made out of inanimate objects. And he didn't do this with just for fun. He was doing this in, as a way to openly criticize the aristocracy. Sometimes he would uh, apl- employ an ironic twist into his work, For instance his work the librarian shows a man made out of books and this was a criticism of rich people who owned books only to collect them and not to actually read them Mm. which i think was very progressive for the time so yeah he was also a very inventive person he built his own instruments he worked in costumes design he wrote poetry wow and i think he really reflected the common interest at the time in subjects like botany zoology and natural studies and I just think it's kind of interesting. And he kind of reminds me of an artist that you're going to talk mm-hmm. about in a bit. I won't spoil it. Yeah. Um, and then I've included one more work. And you can see these on the Instagram. Is this niche underscore podcast? And it is titled Water because I included this one because when I looked at it, it was kind of like, ooh. Because it's a woman's face made out of fish and sea creatures. It's very, like, gruesome looking, but it's also really cool. And she has, like, jewelry on over the fish, which I think is kind of, like, a very obviously, like, making fun of excess and
1: Yeah, yeah, vain. Like flamboyance. Yes, flamboyance, that's the word. I just really like his art. I think it's cool. That is so interesting, like, to be during the Italian yeah. Renaissance and not be painting Baby, baby Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, that's crazy. And there were a lot of ways the artists could experience
0: their creativity and their personal emotions, like Michelangelo painting his own skin, yeah, in the Sistine Chapel. But it was like it's that; still it was more hidden, of, and it was still very yeah. like religious or commissioned work. And so, yeah. like, this is really interesting and impressive. It really is. Yeah. Okay, so next up is Baroque, which is the period that follows the Renaissance. Its art, in terms of like, well, it, it is very different. It would be it would be mm-hmm. kind of an overstatement to be like it's the same, but. It does, it could to like the untrained eye look pretty similar, but it's a lot more dramatic and theatrical. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit more fun because of that. Yeah,
1: I like it more. Yeah.
0: Um, it, I, it's like the 15th to 16th centuries, right? Mm-hmm. And I think there was a little bit more creative freedom being exercised during this time. Yeah. In some ways. So for instance, Bernini was a sculptor during this time. He sculpted a lot of like really unique figures like frozen in motion and that's a big like baroque thing is is capturing like dynamic motion yeah instead of having your figures be like static on the yeah on Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. canvas um and one of the most famous painters from this period is caravaggio and i'm sure a lot of people are familiar with him but he was a crazy guy so i wanted to talk about him because it's pretty interesting So he was known for making very dramatic, large-scale paintings that were often, like, bloody and violent. He was known for experimenting with lights and darks. His paintings would be very, very dark in places and often use light in, like, an expressionistic quality. Um, And he also, like, drew inspiration from his contemporary world. He would show religious figures wearing clothes that you would see on the street at his time which was a new thing because it kind of humanized these religious characters. Yeah. Anyways, I want to talk about his life. He grew up in Milan, but because of the plague, his family tried to flee, and that didn't work out because every male member of his family pretty much died of the plague. Oh. So he went back to Milan, <laughs> and he during this time, we don't know a lot about his life, but he likely studied under a master as an apprentice um, in terms of art. He also mastered swordsmanship during this time, which will be an important detail later on in the story. So he traveled to Rome, where a fellow painter influenced him to break out on his own and establish a solo career for himself instead of get stuck working under an apprentice apprenticeship. So he did, but financial struggle ensued. He turned to fighting and dueling as a means to try to... Elevate his reputation in some way
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I don't know if it worked Because he was known for getting into a lot of trouble He was known to prowl the city At night dressed in black Purposely as to not be seen He was arrested multiple times For carrying a sword on him in public Um, And rumors about his sexuality Spread around It was theorized that he engaged in homosexual activity Which wasn't uncommon At the time Mm -hmm. But um, it would have been pretty slanderous To hear that on the streets You know One of his works is titled Bacchus, and it depicts a male prostitute offering a client a glass of wine, and I thought it was interesting because on the surface layer, we see, like I said, a male prostitute, but it's likely that Caravaggio actually meant for this figure to be Jesus, and the wine actually being an offering of salvation. Interesting. I just think it's interesting that that he's combining images of sin and salvation at the same time. I think it's- That's crazy. Yeah. Madness. (laughs) um caravaggio was known to hang out with prostitutes likely because women weren't allowed to model as artists so if he could like hire a prostitute to come and model that was kind of a way to get around that rule but it's also likely that he worked as a pimp so there's that he eventually got into some trouble with another pimp named tomassoni but he's gonna come back later in 1602 an artist named baglione produced a parody of work that featured a depiction of the devil who resembled Caravaggio attempting to sodomize Cupid which was a clear attack on Caravaggio's homosexual Mm -hmm. preferences and in response Caravaggio and his friends began to harass Baglione to a degree that they were thrown in jail for libel which is kind of the only instance that I'm gonna have to side with Caravaggio on this one He, he was kind of in the right I never knew any of this. This is kind of crazy. It gets crazier. So after the incident with Baglione, Caravaggio went further down into a life of debauchery. He was arrested on multiple occasions, once for throwing stones at (laughs) passerbys just in the middle of the night for fun. (laughs) Twice he committed deterpaccio. I'm probably not saying that right, but it is the act of defiling one's home. And in one of these instances, he actually smeared human feces on the victim's home. Oh my so, god. You know, there's that. Caravaggio. What are you doing? <laughs> um, here's where Tomasoni, the other pimp, comes back. He I don't know the actual terms of their beef, but <laughs> it got to a point where they decided to meet up and duel. So they met on a tennis court. What? And Caravaggio went in for Tomasoni's balls. Oh my god. It would have been a common thing to do in duels because it would have basically like stripped away the loser of his honor and his masculinity but caravaggio missed <laughs> and actually hit tomasoni's an artery oh causing him to bleed out and die <laughs> me so, yesterday <laughs> so um that happened and caravaggio had to flee in his absence he was convicted and a bounty went out for his death so he was on the run During this time, he painted David with the head of Goliath, which shows the frequently depicted biblical scene, but Caravaggio superimposed his own self-portrait onto Goliath's head, which was kind of a representation of how he he was seeing himself at the time and the manifestation of his guilt. At one point, he left for the island of Malta, where he joined ranks with the Knights of the Order of St. John, which was a group that was fighting against Islamic forces in the Mediterranean, and by joining the ranks, he was able to be pardoned for his crimes. However... He always has to get into some trouble <laughs> because he, um, during one night, he managed to somehow wound a senior knight with a pistol and they threw him into what was supposed to be an inescapable cell cut into a rock face. And yet he somehow managed to escape. <laughs> of course. He climbed down the cliffs and into a boat below where he returned to Naples There he was attacked by four unidentified men who likely were sent by the knights to avenge their senior knight. Regardless, Caravaggio suffered some wounds that put him in a grave state. He painted his last two paintings during this time, and the execution of these paintings was so much different from his earlier works that it is suggested that he might have suffered from tremors and a loss of eyesight affecting his art. He met his end when he was riding on horseback to Porto Air Col, probably not saying that right, Um, With the goal of once more being pardoned for his crimes. He died shortly after arriving, though, because he was in a bad state and um, the heat was very overwhelming. And he was in his late 30s and he was buried in an unmarked grave. So that is the story of Caravaggio.
1: That's freaking insane. I wonder what he would think of himself today yeah. like if he was looking back because of how like well known he is now yeah he's one
0: of those kind of artists where he's so long dead that it's okay to still appreciate his art yeah but like he's
1: crazy yeah that
0: man is psycho <laughs> i don't know how he had time to do all that i know that's like, what not <laughs> like
1: how is this real i know like he just casually busts out a painting or two mm-hmm. and, and then-, then goes and smears feces on a building yeah 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 Yeah. that's real cool guy yeah he's so cool he's the coolest cat okay i have another baroque artist specifically a dutch baroque artist anyways this one's my absolute favorite i love rachel Royce. i love her she's everything i've ever wanted to be So, again, Rachel Royce was part of the Dutch Baroque movement. She was raised under Friedrich Royce, who was a botanist, physician, and anatomist. And when you see her artwork, it all makes sense. It really does. I'm going to give you a little bit of history on her father to start us out, just because of how much of an influence he had on her artwork. So Friedrich was a demonstrator of anatomy at the Surgeon's Guild in Amsterdam for nearly 60 years. He was particularly interested in fetal anatomy and would construct anatomical tableaux with the fetal skeletons as main subjects. He also had an unusual hobby of injecting colored waxes into various vessels and organs that he would use to create dioramas in landscapes out of organs, which in her late teens, Rachel played a key role in helping her father arrange these dioramas, so she was no stranger to anatomy. Friedrich was very interested in the idea of memento mori or the inevitability of death, and kept a span of five rooms containing cabinets of anatomical and botanical curiosities. And obviously, all this had a great impact on the one and only, Rachel Royce. Her father also collected artwork from the local painter. Otto Marcius van Schriek, whose main imagery was dark forestry and insects, and when van Schriek died, Friedrich grabbed hundreds of preserved butterflies from van Schriek's personal collection And that just all ties into the artwork that Rachel was creating. Yeah. When Rachel was 14, she apprenticed under Willem van Oust, who specialized in still lifes and flowers, which in general was incredibly uncommon during that time, for a young female artist to be allowed to apprentice under a premier painter like Willem. But Rachel did not disappoint, of course. Rachel very quickly gained a reputation across Amsterdam, her incredible realism in the plants and insects she was depicting. A lot of her artworks alluded to mortality in the natural life cycle. Her plants were often depicted drooping, the leaves were perforated by bugs, and she often had imagery of the food train. One thing about her paintings that I just thought was super interesting is that in a lot of her floral arrangements, she would blend flowers that bloomed in different seasons and even in different parts of the world that would never exist together naturally. That's pretty really cool. So cool. She was also one of the first Western painters to include cacti in her still lifes, as well as the first to depict the allied or midwife toad in the still life. Overall, her artwork did not conform to the predominant conventions of typical still lifes during her period, nor to scientific illustrations. Instead, she kind of combined both and created a unique and important name for herself. Rachel Royce honestly deserves her own entire episode, because there's so much more to her, but that is all we have time for today. And this part of art history, honestly, will 24-7 send me into a fit of rage. This is mostly for my non-art history listeners, and even maybe my art history friends. I don't know, but you, you all know the name Rembrandt, right? Mm-hmm. And he was active at the same time as Rachel Royce, and he is in actuality studied more, talked about more, and better well-known, when in fact, Rachel Royce dominated him during the time. She revolutionized still lifes, sold her canvases for more money than he did, and contributed to influential scientific developments, all while raising 10 kids. I'm sorry, but what did Rembrandt do again? (laughs) You're mad. I really am.
0: Okay. No comment? No, I think that's fair. So next up after Baroque, we kind of get into a more complicated period where there are like lots of shorter periods here and there. Mm -hmm. So we're going to kind of talk about typically this would be like fall fall under neoclassical slash Rococo slash enlightenment. So that's just kind of where we are. We're kind of in like the 1700s now, I think. Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Give or take. Yeah, give or take. (laughs) So the artists that I'm going to be discussing for my... I'm going into neoclassical because that's just where I was at, Mm -hmm. but is Marie Guillemin Benoit, who directly contributed to the neoclassical art movement. Just a little background for those of you that don't know, the neoclassical art period arose in opposition of the overly decorated and gaudy styles that transpired in Rococo and Baroque art periods. In generality, neoclassicism called for a revival of classical thought leading up to the French Revolution. So back to Marie Guillemin Benoit, she was born in Paris, where her father was a royal administrator for the ancient regime state. Marie and her sister both took art lessons from Elisabeth Vigie Le Brun, an apprenticed under Jacques-Louis David. As her artistic career took off, she made increasingly ambitious subject choices. She commonly depicted herself in an exposed manner in order to create a comparison between the commonality of nude portraits of women in the allegories of painting. The artwork that I'm going to be talking about specifically is the Portrait de Madeleine that Marie painted near the end of a brief eight-year period when France abolished slavery in its Caribbean colonies. It is an artwork depicting a young black woman adorned in loose, white fabric with a red sash around her waist and an exposed breast. Although we can only infer the intentions of Marie painting a black sitter during the time when the only other likeness of a black individual being exhibited in an art gallery was the portrait of citizen Jean-Baptiste Belli, who was a black man of military power and advocate for racial equality. So not only was it during the time unusual f- to have a black sitter for an artwork, but also a female black sitter. Overall, the artwork is is a symbol of women's emancipation and black rights. This painting focuses on a black woman as its main subject adorned with jewelry and decorum that would be typical for those of an upper class. Although in contrary, she has her breast out in the open which seems a little demeaning. Possibly this could be a commentary on the social environment at the time when the status of black people was improved but that did not completely rid of oppression and racism. And this painting has been in the Louvre's collection since 1818. Wow. Very
0: interesting. I agree. All right. So like I said, this kind of falls under the same-ish period, Mm -hmm. like in terms of time, at least. I'm going to be talking about Francisco Goya. He has been called one of the last old masters and one of the first modernists. So he kind of straddles like a transitional period in art. Mm -hmm. He was a Spanish artist during a time of a lot of turmoil in Spain because napoleon bonaparte had appointed i believe his brother to rule over spain but eventually a war for independence broke out between france and spain and i'll get into that in a bit goya was born in 1746 he studied art through his youth and was eventually employed as a court painter but social and political upheaval made him re-examine his role in society in 1792 he fell ill and this illness caused him to become permanently deaf The illness took a great toll on him, and from this point on, his art shifted, reflecting his dreary mood and criticizing the contemporary world. During the Spanish War of Independence, he produced a series of 82 etchings called The Disasters of War, and these pieces were heavily censored at the time, but they were also at the same time easily accessible because they were prints, and thus a wider range of people were able to access them and interpret his message, which was a criticism generally just of war. The works depicted brutal scenes on the battlefield to criticize violence against both sides of people involved in the war. He also produced a series, a series of etchings in 1799 depicting the follies of society. These works were haunting, sometimes funny, images meant to criticize ignorance, prejudice, etc. One of them, called The Yard with the Lunatics, reflects his personal fear of alienation and also condemns the brutality. That prisoners were meant to undergo. In the middle ages of his life, Goya went through a nervous breakdown. His works during this time were notable because they featured subjects that quote, would find no place in commissioned works, end quote. It has been theory that he might have suffered from a form of paranoid paranoid dementia, and his works definitely reflect this as they are a catalog of his own personal demons and horrific imagery. Towards the end of his life, he moved into the Quinta del Sordo, which was called the House of the Dead Man, and he lived here in pretty much extreme isolation. He worked privately, intending for his works to never be exhibited, and his fear of old age and madness became overwhelmingly present in the works of this time. It's likely that the social upheaval of the time didn't help, and he turned towards a return towards subjects of the past as a source of comfort. At the age of 75, he painted a series of 14 paintings known as the Black Paintings, which he painted directly onto the plaster walls of his house, one of which is probably one of his most famous works is called Saturn Devouring His Son, and this painting is very haunting. It depicts the figure of Saturn, or the Greek titan Kronos, taking on an animalistic stance driven by madness and fear devouring the body of one of his children. The scene is derived from the Greek myth of Kronos eating his 12 godchildren out of fear that they would surpass him in power. And the work reflects Goya's fear of his own mind, his fear of insanity. The depiction of Saturn in this piece specifically is haunting, as his humanity seems to be completely lost. His face is twisted in an expression of horror, and he grips the mutilated body of his son with a firm hand, reflecting his inability to escape. Mm-hmm the whole scene is very gruesome and fascinating and for that reason it's one of my favorite pieces probably ever one of them hmm. yeah so after the enlightenment era of the 1700s we jump into the 1800s and our history becomes a bit more complicated because there are a lot of smaller styles that begin to emerge and um subcategories and just like overlap So I actually decided to go for something that comes from more of the, like, romantic period, and you might be, you might be familiar with this artist if you remember listening to the Unpacking the Muse episode, but if not, Mm -hmm. let me introduce you to Elizabeth Siddall. Um, I want to fill you in first on a movement called the Pre-Raphaelettes. It was a circle of artists mostly dominated by men. They drew inspiration from the medieval ages. They painted fairy tale like scenes, damsels in distress, sometimes classical scenes. I really like this movement, but at the same time, it's easy to see the present misogyny in these pieces and in the artists. Um, You just have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. We've also discussed in our podcast John William Waterhouse before and he was yeah, he was a member of um this group and his art is really cool and you should check him out or listen to our past episodes. Yes
1: I (laughs) would prefer you listen to Yeah,
0: do that. Anyways, Elizabeth or more commonly known as Lizzie Siddall was an aspiring artist, but she was a woman so there was some barriers there. She was supposedly and I say this with quotation marks discovered by a member of the pre raphaelites Walter DeVrell, um, one day while she was working. He recruited her to model for the pre raphaelites because he was drawn, actually, to her unique uh, facial features, which at the time would have been a subversion of typical Eurocentric beauty standards. I would argue that now she definitely still fits into that category of, like, yeah, white Eurocentric beauty standards, but at the time it was she, you know would have not been considered very attractive mm-hmm. um but that's why she stood out to the pre raphaelites so you're probably familiar with the painting ophelia by john everett Millais. it depicts the moment of ophelia's suicide in shakespeare's hamlet and she lays in a river surrounded by flowers mm-hmm. i went into the story so i'm not gonna like go super in depth again but the gist of it is that Lizzie had to lie down in a, bathroom, in, a, in a bathtub in the winter to model for this work and in the process of doing so, the oil lamps keeping the bath hot went out. So she contracted pneumonia from laying in the freezing water for hours, causing her to get a prescription to laudanum, which was an opioid, and she became addicted. She married an artist named Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who sucked. He publicly cheated on her constantly, which provoked Lizzie to rely more on the opioids. She also struggled to gain the respect and recognition of her peers, even though her husband could have helped her probably, like gain equal footing. He Mm -hmm. didn't because he sucked. Mm -hmm. Um, And all the while, Rossetti continued to use Lizzie as a model, basically profiting off of her image while she suffered. Um, At one point, she became pregnant, but gave birth to a stillborn child and developed postpartum depression. She became pregnant once more in 1862, but the same year, she overdosed fatally and died, which was implied when I said fatally. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Her story sucks a lot because she was surrounded by men who just think that they're inherently better than her, which isn't much different from the reality of today, but... um, to think that she was struggling to gain equal footing with her contemporaries, all while struggling with addiction and postpartum depression is just really depressing. Yeah. But there is one work that I want to talk about that she did. It's called Saint Agnes, and it is a simple depiction of the patron patron saint of chastity. Saint Agnes is depicted as a nun who is sworn off marriage and instead is waiting for her bridegroom Jesus. In the work It shows a nun trapped indoors looking longingly out the window, which represents how Lizzie herself likely felt trapped and held back by her femininity. She longs to be a part of the masculine sphere, which is represented by the outdoors in this painting. And that just can't happen. There are just too many barriers. Yeah, so kind of depressing, but she does have a lot of interesting works. And I think it's interesting that she is the face of so many artists work and so many successful artists work and yet we don't know her name except now we do yeah so yeah there's that i have two more we're in the home stretch guys so yeah there's a lot more to be said about the art of the 19th century like there's you know impressionism post-impressionism symbolism expressionism etc but simply i did not feel like it yeah (laughs) i didn't feel like doing dealing with that so you guys know the vibes. It's it's Van Gogh and Monet and man Yeah, it's whatever and, the hell we want. Yeah. yeah. So I have two more periods to talk about. This next one is modernism.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I have a confession to make. I'm not a big fan of 20th century art, for the most part. That's kind of a generalization because there is yeah, a lot of cool yeah. art there. I have to say, like it's like 50 50. Like I like a lot of it, but there's also a lot that I'm like. Mm, yeah. You guys know how I feel about Picasso. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. However, the 1990s, 1900s saw a surge of creativity and so many different art movements came out and sprang out of the woodworks. And so there is a lot that could be talked about. Mm -hmm. And I decided to talk about a woman named Hilma Af Klint. Love her. I read a book about her this summer, so I had to talk about her. I love her. She was a Swedish artist who began her work in 1906. And her work was, like, so ahead of her time. Uh, yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. Um, she predated artists like Kandinsky and Mondrian, who I don't like. I Sorry, I'm going to put it out there. I don't no, like them. And it's very clear that she influenced them, and yet she's never really recognized, like, ever. Yeah,
1: because women.
0: Yeah. Um, she studied at the Royal Academy of Fine Arts in Stockholm, which was a feat in and of itself And she befriended another female artist at the time named Anna Cassell, and we'll talk about her later. She became interested in spiritualism and theosophy Mm -hmm. and the occult, which was a part of a wider social phenomenon where science and religion were kind of converging a bit as rapid scientific progress contributed to the lessening importance of religion and people in the West began to explore their own spirituality as well as the... Religions around the world as well, looking outside of just Christianity. Hilma and four other women arranged a group that they called the Five, which Mm -hmm. was a group of five women who met once a week for years and they held seances to communicate with the spirits. Mm -hmm. Hilma and the other four, which were Anna Cassell, Cornelius Cederberg, Sigrid Heldman, and Matilda Nilsson, believed that the spirits were guiding their art and we can actually attribute a lot of her art to definitely anna cassell and possibly these other women um it's kind of sometimes we just contribute it to her which is annoying because i'll get get into why it's annoying later hilma made her living off conventional paintings like landscapes but she believed that her real calling was her art that explored her spirituality in her seances they she believed that she was contacting spirits called the high masters which were just like enlightened beings And these spirits were guiding her to create a series of 193 paintings called Paintings for the Temple. Hilma herself admitted that she wasn't even sure what this temple was, but the spirits had provided her with a vision for it. And so she and the other women felt that they were destined to carry it out. That's so normal of them. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably that lead paint, to be honest. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) People die from that. Mm -hmm. But um, these five women managed to create a visual language reflecting what they were seeing and hearing from this um, spiritual exploration that they were going through. Clint's works are, like, stunning. I am including a few, but there's so many. Like I said, there's 193 in that series alone, so, like, go check them out. I normally, like, prefer objective works, but it's just so fascinating to look at these like crazy colors and forms and they're huge yeah they're massive that she put together one of my favorite though is one of her objective pieces it's called uh the swan and dove and it's likely representative of her relationship with anna cassell because it's theorized that they were in a romantic relationship but of course it would have had to be kept under tight wraps at the time
1: we remember caravaggio
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah girl like
1: (laughs) yikes so
0: I've included images of both Anna and Hilma's work because I think it's important to recognize that a lot of Hilma's work was collaborative. Um, and I think it's frustrating that we don't recognize the other women because it's almost like we only accept one great woman artist, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's kind of regressive. It's like we weirdly don't want, we want her to be great on her own.
1: I feel like that's depending because artists still today have like, a team of artists that work on things yeah. like yeah that's a, that's always been a thing mm-hmm. and they get like the only yeah credit but yeah so i don't know if i i think more so because this
0: wasn't like a workshop situation it was like they were genuinely just like it was like they would lay out the canvas and all of them work on it at the same time like there's one that you can see like someone's footprint accidentally they walked over the canvas an accident and they Kill left her. their footprint there. <laughs> but they like embraced it they were like oh it must yeah. have been you know it was different than like um van van Eyck or something like running a workshop where he had apprentices working for him well, it was a very equal situation i just think i mean like in terms of what i'm saying when when hilma's works are exhibited it's usually only attributed to her and the other women aren't really usually mentioned and I think that it has to do with her being a female artist because I feel like there's a subconscious like expectation for there not to be yeah no a lot I of,
1: I definitely think yeah. that's a thing but it's I'm also like like paying ode to the fact that that still is a thing oh like, yeah 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 it's, yeah it's still happening and it happens to everyone like, yeah it, like when you work in a apprentice work and yeah, yeah like if you're yeah, yeah. if you're like building uh, what's the one guy who did a bunch of Sunflower seeds. Uh, um, what was that art called? I can't remember. Well he, I know who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he filled yes. the room full of sunflower seeds and there it wasn't just him making oh, the sunflower yeah. seeds. Yeah, like yeah, it yeah. was a whole entire team mm-hmm. and they are not like giving credit yeah. at all either. Um just Jeff
0: Koons is a good example of that. I hate Jeff Coons. His art yeah. sucks. Fact. And um he He
1: did the Pink Panther.
0: Yes. Yeah. That ugly, yeah. horrible work. And he specifically like does not really touch the actual process of making his works yes which is yeah. just like and com- like when you look at the actual stuff that his work is it's like dude this is this sucks get a get a job get a life go away <laughs> um and it, there's a lot to be said about that in terms of yeah um privilege and class and race and how that plays and like it, especially the in in the contemporary world
1: artist's hand and stuff like, yes but that about. would be that would be a whole other Ooh, discussion yeah. oh girl um i could get into that yeah yeah um but yeah so i have
0: one more artist that i want to talk about and his you know what let me let me do a little introduction first i'm going into the contemporary period and there are so many contemporary artists that i could discuss but i was like you know i don't know that much about this artist but i like his art a lot so i want to look into him i'm going to be talking about yoshitomo nara he is a japanese artist who commonly depicts images of little girls with huge heads like comically huge heads big piercing eyes and childlike expressions that actually convey adult emotions um he has a very distinct look to his art you've probably seen it and like not known that it was him but i really love his art like i think it's really cool if anyone wants to get me a yoshimoto's nara sticker i would not be opposed (laughs) anyways i want to give some cultural context to his art because he is a japanese artist and i think it's important to talk about especially because this influences work modern japanese art in specifically which has been shaped by the f- results of the 20th century So, as we know, America dropped two atomic bombs on Japan in World War II. It ended the war and left a lasting wound on Japan. This is, of course, a huge oversimplification, but, you know, just for the sake of time. If you're familiar with World War II, you probably know that one of the bombs was nicknamed Little Boy. Mm -hmm. And this is just kind of like a weird, twisted thing, because um, one huge aspect of the aftermath of the bombing of Japan was that Japan became subsequently, like, infantilized by the West and there's definitely like a connection there um a cause and effect kind of thing so japanese artists would struggle with their identity after this point because it was hard to embrace a country that was so that that's history had at least its recent history had involved imperialism nationalism being a part of the Axis powers you know etc mm-hmm. the same of course could be said about america or britain or you know any of those huge powers sure yeah I think this has a little bit more of a poignancy because of just how, in the grand scheme of things, how, like, recent this is. and But at the same time, there was a lot of, like, grief in Japan from the effects of the bombings. I mean, like, two of their major cities had become destroyed. So just a lot of, like, mixed feelings and, and cultural developments coming out of this. Would you believe if I told you that one of the results of the mixed feelings coming out of these historic events was actually a surge of manga and anime yes i would (laughs) (laughs) two examples of such being astro boy and neon genesis evangelion i personally have not watched either of those i did try to watch nge which is how i'm going to be condensing it but i can see the correlation there as much as I would love to go off on a tangent about that topic, I'm not going to. My point here is that after World War II, Japan was infantilized and their culture very much reflected this. Take for instance the phenomenon of kawaii, which means cute, mm-hmm. but it brings to mind a certain imagery and I think that especially in the West when we think of Japanese culture, we see a very like homogenized version of it. We think of harajuku fashion district or the shibuya crossing with it's like huge billboards and and just like it's like the times square you know yeah and we think of anime and manga and kawaii and it's true that japan just like america is a very heavily commercialized place but the reason that we think of it in such a way is directly related to world war ii and and the bombs mm-hmm. and so a lot of japanese artists were like if we're gonna be infantilized then we might as well profit off of it like we might as yeah we (laughs) might as well so I just you know I read a lot about that for my Japanese art history class so I wanted to dive into that so anyways um back to Yoshitomo Nora you can kind of see how the influence of that infantilization has an effect on his art and it definitely affected the Japanese pop art movement which is where he came to the forefront in the 90s um his work was also influenced by punk rock anime and manga and American music like R.E.M. His subjects are cartoonish children, usually girls. The compositions are very simple. The background is usually just a field of color. And the children of these works sometimes do things that subvert their childlike nature and their childlike innocence. He combines childlike imagery with horror as a way to respond to the rigid social order of Japan. Yeah, I was just looking at the pictures of the artwork Mm -hmm. and
1: it has such like a dark undertone to it.
0: Yeah, and I haven't even like included as many as i would want some feature images of children holding weapons some children look at the viewer accusingly sometimes political messages are superimposed over their heads or on their clothing and nara once explained that while yes sometimes he depicts children holding weapons we're meant to recognize that it's a small child holding a small weapon in a world of big adults with bigger weapons in a metaphorical sense Mm -hmm. and he uses children as a vessel for a range of emotionally complex emotional complexity and in a way he's using these children's subjects as an accusatory way of placing cultural and social guilt on older generations for contemporary issues Mm -hmm. which i think is really unique and poignant and i like his art a lot it's it is very deep and complex and layered but it is also at the same time like pretty fun too yeah you yeah know, look at and go into he is just so much art and such like a, a multidisciplinary practice that is just like really cool so thank you for letting me talk for an hour <laughs> yeah um that was our first episode yes so we're so excited to be I back know. it's so great i have so many ideas and next
1: week we are covering the barbie world so exciting yes we gotta hop on it you know yeah why not yeah and i i love barbies i've always loved barbies of course i'm very excited i had a lot of weird barbies yeah me too (laughs) me too i feel like i am a weird barbie
0: (laughs) you got played with too much i really did so yeah we're gonna be diving into barbie next week and um that was all for this week thank you for listening thank you for
1: listening and have a fantastic week (laughs) (laughs) bye